Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Goran Ivanisevic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin with his twin brother Tim and was a preeminent fixture in pro tennis. Posting wins over Borg and Connors, he got to 34 in the world and with Tim, 4 in the world in doubles, finally Wimbledon. He was one of the original national coaches in the first USTA player development program back in 1988 and was Davis Cup captain for six years, winning the cup in Russia in 1995. The Great Gully. Tom Gullickson, my friend, my father's friend, is today's guest. Tom. Hey, Craig. Are you in Chicago? Is that right? I'm in Chicago, Illinois. Yes. Gentlemen, you hear is, you know, certain people have last names that become shortened. Uh, mine quite often gets shortened to Shap or Shappy, and uh, there's only one in the world, and that is Gully. Tom Gullickson <laughs> is former Davis Cup Winning captain, former world number four doubles player with his brother, Tim, his twin, Tim, and a guy that I've known since I was probably about six years old. Uh, Nice to see you, man. Great to see you, Craig. What's going on? You just finished up the winter there and that's it? Yeah, we're we're living in Chicago. My wife, Sean, and my stepdaughter, Margot, and I, and uh, I'm, you know, I retired from the USTA in uh, 2017, but I'm you know, doing some consulting for Midtown Athletic Club. And it's a five-minute drive from our house. We've got a nice little $100 million club, and I'm doing some coaching, you know, something I've always loved to do. So I'm coaching 15 to 20 hours a week uh, in the winter. I heard you have a primetime gig at that spot. Let's just get right into it then. As you know, we do the five-set format, the first set, is the off the court report since Indian Wells 2020? Um, the world's been generally speaking down for the count. Uh, right. wh- how did that impact you? And how are you guys? Uh, are you guys coming back to life? Yeah, we're we're uh, surviving, and you know, I I I thank God every day that I can play tennis and coach tennis and also played a lot of golf. And I think between the tennis and the golf and, you know, having good friends and a great family, you know, that's kind of helped us uh, kind of survive the pandemic and uh, yeah, trying to stay healthy and kind of do good things outside, which is clearly a better place to be than indoors. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Timmy and I hit our first tennis ball when we were five years old in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And, 60, uh, 64 years later, I still love hitting the tennis ball and, and still playing a lot and coaching quite a bit at Midtown Athletic Club and uh, just enjoying life. Are you getting the vaccine? Are you going to do it? Yeah, I've gotten the two Pfizer shots already, so I'm uh, fully vaccinated. That's it. You're vaccinated. You never, you never had it. Nope. No, lucky enough, you know, knock on wood, I'm lucky never to have it. Uh, my wife, Sean, is getting her second shot uh, tomorrow, so she'll, she'll be fully vaccinated. And, uh, yeah, thankfully, my family you know, up in Wisconsin, I still have a mother who's 93 and a sister and a brother, and they've all gotten their shots as well. So, uh, 
I can go give them a hug again rather than kind of talking to them on a Zoom call like I'm doing with you. That's it, baby. So let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. I've got a lot I want to talk about, but first and foremost, that this club that you're um, the big time hired gun over at that club, that's a hundred million dollar club. Did you just say? Yeah. Midtown, you know, Midtown athletic club uh, on Elston Avenue here in Chicago. Uh, yeah. It's part of uh, uh, a series of clubs that uh, Alan Schwartz, former USDA president, owns like uh, he and his family uh, own like eight midtowns around the country. And I would say this has got to be their flagship uh, club. Uh, two years ago, uh, before COVID, we, we hosted the, uh, the ITA national indoors for the men. We had 16 of the six, the 16 top men's collegiate teams here. And, uh, a lot of my good friends, like a David Roditi and uh, and Peter Smith and, and guys like that, were here with their teams, and uh, they all loved it. You know, for our listeners, the ITA is the the high level college uh, invitationals. I think that they do correct, yes. and that's actually a great show. Yeah, yeah, no, we uh, we hosted it, and and we we there were some great tennis and. Uh, you know, J.J. Wolf uh, was playing number one for Ohio State. He went undefeated, and uh, Ohio State ended up winning the collegiate indoors with their coach, Ty Tucker, who's done a great job there at Ohio State. That's a big-time program. Now, I mean, that basically, that sounds, like a, that sounds like a great gig, Gully. You just go down the street, and that's basically a lifetime achievement award for being one of the world-class coaches there is, right? Well, you know... Uh, I'd like to think I contribute a little bit, but, uh, you know, between, you know, playing and coaching, you know, I, I played 11 years on the tour with Timmy and, uh, I coached for over 30 years on the pro tour at the highest level. And, you know, as Davis cup captain and Olympic coach, I was blessed to work with, you know, four, uh, three, number ones, a number two, a number four, I had, you know, Agassi, Sampras, Courier, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, Jared Palmer, Jonathan Stark, Alex O'Brien, Richie Renenberg. I had a who's who of, of uh, really now. A lot of those guys are clearly in the Hall of Fame. Gully, we're going to get into your career in the next set, but I just want to ask you, are you plugged into the ATP currently? Are you a matriculating active member? Can you... Well, I, I'm not a member, a senior member or alumni member, but, uh, you know, I, I coached Riley Opelka from the age of 8 to 13, and, you know, he's top 40 in the world right now, and and uh, he, he literally and figuratively a very big presence <laughs> when he shows up on the ATP tour. But, Gully, do you have any feel for what's happening with this, like, the breakaway group and – you know, the current uh, executive table that's there and what's happening? Well, you know, I, I certainly understand that uh, you know, Djokovic has, has uh, broken off and tried to form his own players union. And you know, there's been talk about that, you know, over the years since the ATP was founded in the kind of early 70s. And, you know, I was always a member. Timmy and I were members and we were playing actively on the tour 
but you know just kind of the fundamental principle you know if you if you own a tour which is a series of tournaments and you also are representing the players there is kind of an inherent kind of conflict of interest there i mean who do you care more about the tournaments or the players so i uh, certainly understand the the arguments there do you know anything that we don't do you have do you get any inside information that we might get i you know i i really don't i uh you know i'm I'm a little divorced from the the politics uh, of the ATP and the and the tour in general, just because you know we have really no tour events in Chicago. We did have a challenge. We have a couple challengers here, but we don't have any tour events on the on the men's tour, which is really kind of sad because Chicago is a pretty good tennis town. You know, is Chicago a good tennis town? Yeah, it is a good tennis town. There's you know, a lot of clubs and a lot of, you know, the members in the, in the Chicago District Tennis Association. Um, yeah, a lot of avid, avid tennis players. And obviously Northwestern is here and U- University of Illinois has always had a good program, especially going back to when Craig Tiley took it over and they had Kevin Anderson there and they didn't they do a big time labor cup there. Wasn't that like kind of a test yeah, run over the, yeah, they did a labor cup and, uh, I had to call Rod Laver to get tickets, so I had to had to pull a a gully a gully card and uh, had really? called up the rocket and I said, "Hey, Rod, any chance of getting tickets for the Laver Cup? We just ought to come one night." And uh, Rod said, "Sure, let me uh, talk to my people and uh, they'll get a hold of you." And I had two tickets for my wife Sean and I to the to the Rocket Club. I mean, and, and like all the good Aussies, uh, you know, the Rocket Club was, uh, you know, an unbelievable buffet and an open bar. And, you know, what's more Australian than that, you know? That's it. Yeah. Seb Corda. What can you tell me about Seb Corda right now? Uh, I think Seb Corda is uh, a remarkable uh, talent. Obviously, got very good genes, you know. Father Peter, without the with where's the E Peter? Uh, uh, he was a Grand Slam champion and top five in the world. And his wife uh, actually was like a top thirty player when I was coaching Jennifer Copperati. She actually played her one time, and I just remember watching this this very beautiful woman and a very good athlete with the sweetest one hand backhand I've ever seen. And uh, she was a very good player herself. So uh, Peter's wife uh, was a player, and she had a she had a good one handed back. I didn't realize she had a one handed backhand. She had a sweet one, man. You got to check it out. But uh, yeah, I think uh, young Sebastian. I think uh, he, I love his uh, demeanor on the court. He's very very calm. He's very composed. Uh, and I think when you look, watch him play, you know, I'm a big fan of the fundamentals and you watch him hit a forehand and a backhand and he's the, the epitome of effortless power. And he's silky smooth, huh? The way yeah. he cracks. So smooth. Uh, no extra moving parts on his strokes. He executes a beautiful unit turn on his forehand and his backhand. And hold on a second. Explain that unit turn. What's that? Unit unit turn is in very simple terms. It's it's uh, opening up your forehand hip and turning your shoulders at the same time. So your lower body is turning, 
and your upper body is turning. You know, so if you're going toward your forehand as a right-hander, it'd be to your right, and then executing that same unit turn toward your backhand if you're right-handed, it'd be opening up your left foot and turning your shoulders at the same time. So, you know, as you and I are playing, Craig, as soon as the ball leaves your racket, you know, I execute a unit turn. If it's coming to my forehand or my backhand, I open up my that side hip and turn the shoulders, get the racket above the hand, and then drop and rip, you know. And he's uh, he's uh, got great fundamentals, as you would expect, with world-class parents uh, and great coaching. And uh, he's working with my buddy Dean Goldfine at yeah. the USTA, Dino. Yeah. Who's a great guy and a great coach, you know. For our listeners, Dean Goldfine, longtime high performance coach and uh, the coach of Todd Martin when Todd, I think, got to like two in the world, right? Like great, great success. Yeah. And and late twin brother Timmy, you know, got Dean in, in coaching. Timmy was coaching uh uh Mary Joe Fernandez, and he was kind of like the master coach and and he couldn't travel all the time with her. So he he encouraged her to to use Dean Goldfine as a traveling coach. So so Timmy got Dean his first kind of gig in pro tennis. You talked to Dean about Seb? Yeah, I've talked to Dean and, and we stay in touch. He's a big Chicago Cubs fan because yeah. his his dad uh was born and raised in Chicago and, and uh so hopefully Dean's gonna come this summer and we'll catch a game or something. Has he told you about Seb anything interesting about him? I haven't really gone in depth with him other than, you know, I'm very impressed on all fronts, you know, the, the, the obvious talent tennis wise, you know, when I, when I watched it, since I kind of watched him from the juniors onward, you know, in the juniors, you know, he was really the skinny kid who had good strokes, but he was a little bit slow and he didn't have much pop on the serve. But now, you know, fast forward three years later, I mean, the kid's got some legs on him. He's strong. He's gotten a lot stronger. He's moving much better. And, you know, he's got a lot more pop on the serve, which is things you need to survive in the rough and tumble world of men's tennis. I thought he was a good mover. Um, it, would, it, would that be fair to say that the book on him is that he's, he's not a great mover? Well, that, uh, I think that that was the book when he was in the juniors. He uh-huh. wasn't, a, wasn't such a great mover. But I would say now one of the reasons he's playing so well is I think he moves very well now. And he moves you, unbe- I thought he moved unbelievable in Miami, baby. Yeah. You referenced the smooth part, you know, and I think there's, there's the smooth tennis game, the, just the strokes, which clearly he has, and he's very efficient. You know, he doesn't have any extra like moving parts like a uh, Francis Tiafo forehand, like a few extra wiggles in it, you know? Yeah. And uh, so he's got, no extra moving parts on any of his strokes and movement. He's very efficient as well. He moves, he doesn't take any extra steps and, you know, being six, three or so, I mean, he, he covers the court with a, a minimum of steps and like his tennis strokes, his movement is also very efficient. Hubert Hercots won the won, won that tournament, won Miami. Do you have any impressions of him? Yeah, I think he's a very good player. I, I like his uh, aggressiveness. And once again, you know, he's he's a big guy. What is he, 6'5 or so or 6'6? Six, six? I mean, yeah. he's a big guy. He's got a huge serve. Uh, he's got a really nice all-court all game. And, 
you know, he, he can play some serious offense. He finishes at the net very well, which as a big fan of, of, of an all-court game and, and finishing at the net, uh, I can appreciate and, and really admire. And uh, he's also not afraid to put his little blue collar, he put the blue collar on the shirt and go to work. I mean, the guy can defend the court like an animal. He runs and scrapes and he's not, he's not beneath, you know, getting a little dirty and, and grubbing some points out. Guy won Miami. I mean, that's no joke. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great performance from him. And once again, working with my buddy Craig Boyton. And Craig uh, uh, was a long, he's a longtime high performance coach, and he's done a good job pretty much with everybody he's worked with. So Craig Boyton, another one of these guys, part yeah. of that group, really. I mean, and oh, so yeah. Hercots is with Boyton. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now. The, the, you know, obviously the clay court's begun and Sitsipa won Monte Carlo. Did you watch any Monte Carlo, Gully? I did. What'd you think of Sitsipas? I, I love his game. You know, I, I love, love to watch game. him play on clay, Gully. Yeah, no. I love to watch him play on clay. Yeah, you know, I, you know once again, I mean, here's a guy who's uh, done a great job of developing kind of an all-court game. And, uh yeah, the great Roger Federer, when he was asked, you know, what's wrong with this next gen? When are they going to push you guys out and start winning Grand Slams? And Roger's answer was very simple. He said, a lot of these guys just don't know what to do in the mid court or the front court. And and he's 100% right. And then uh, come, coming along is Shisha Pass, who has a beautiful all-court game. And he actually is a very good volleyer, and he's not afraid to go to the net, which you know, it's hard to hit winners from the backcourt against these guys because they all move so well and they all defend so well. So, you know, the party's at the net. You know, you, you do go up there to get your big cardboard checked and shake hands. But, you know, if you can finish at the net, that's a big part of it. So hang on. So so Fed basically was basically uncomplimentary of the new age player saying all they can do is crack from the baseline. Once they get into the middle of the court, they don't know where to, they don't know how to close and they can't volley. Well, they, that's, you know, and, and with, as you know, Craig, uh, the technology of the game and, and everything is off the charts now between the rackets and the string technology. And, you know, these guys are hitting forehands over a hundred miles an hour. They're hitting serves 140 plus miles an hour. So, you know, they all possess the ability to hit winners from the midcourt. But a lot of times, you know, a, a good approach and a nice finishing volley would would do the job as well. And uh, if they had a better all-court game, they wouldn't feel the pressure to have to hit winners from the midcourt because they could use, also use the approach and volley combinations to win points. Uh, let's just go quick on a few more players, please, and then we're going to move, okay? Okay. Uh, Tommy Paul hasn't gotten to where people thought he was going to be. Tommy is, uh, yeah, he, he's made some uh, big adjustments lately. You know, my good friend Brad Stein is now coaching him. And, you know, Tommy's at a career high ranking right now. So He's uh, at a career high. Yeah, he's at a career high. He's ranked 50-something. And, uh, you know, he was kind of out in the wilderness for a while, ranked two, 300 in the world when all his buddies were 30 or 40, you know? And, uh, yeah, he kind of lost his way a little bit. I think he, you know, he won the French open juniors and he signed some good contracts and, you know, 
he let a few things distract him, but I think he's working hard now. I think he's uh, working smart with Coach Brad Stein. Brad uh, Stein, um, Coach Courier at One Juncture, too, everyone. Exactly, and, and Brad's done a great job with him, and, and Tommy has embraced the clay, you know, unlike a lot of Americans who we all seem to be allergic to the red clay. Tommy uh, went over right after Miami, and he's grinding on the clay, and uh, clearly he likes the surface, and he's not uh, afraid to put the work in. So I think he's on a, on a pretty good trajectory right now. We'll see how high he can get. He, he's very athletic. He's a great mover. I heard that he's the best athlete of all these players. Yeah, he's got a, got a big forehand and a pretty solid two-hander, and his serve has gotten bigger, and he has improved the volley. Courier and, said uh, that he tests the best of any of the players, like the VO2 blood gas, all that stuff. He oh, does yeah. all the best. No, he's very, very fit now, Tommy, and, and he's always been a good athlete. He's, he's just kind of a fun-loving guy, and, and that's great. You know, you can do whatever you want to off the court, but, you know, when you, when you get between the lines, uh, you know, that's your business. Yeah, we heard he likes to party hardy, um, but hopefully he, he gets, that, gets his career on a good trajectory and plays some big-time tennis. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm looking for some good things. Uh, I think he might surprise some people on the clay. And Riley? Yeah, Riley, uh, you know, he's had his ups and downs. You know, he's been uh, injured a lot. You know, he's working with my good friend Jay Berger in, uh, in, uh, in Palm Beach. And J.Y. Aboni is his traveling coach. J.Y. played number one at Florida State. And uh, very good guy, very good coach as well. So, you know, Riley's got a good team around him. He's got a good trainer. And I think probably the number one thing for Riley is to stay healthy. I mean, he is seven, you know, seven feet tall. And, you know, he's, uh, he's been sidetracked. You know, he'll have some good results. And, win, you know, he's won a couple tournaments. He won the New York Open. He won Del Rey. And then right after he won Del Rey, you know, that's when the uh, pandemic hit. And he lost his op. He had all this momentum going, and then the pandemic hits and cancel Indian Wells and Miami. You know, two Masters 1000s where he could have really done some big damage. And and uh, you know he's uh, you know he he got injured quite a bit, so he couldn't really train as well as he would like. And hopefully, he's going to find the right mix of uh, the training and. Uh, and uh, staying healthy. I mean, that's one thing that he's learned from his, his big, big time, big brother, John Isner, who's kind of taken Riley under his wing a little bit and been great to Riley. And John, you know, as you know, he's finished top 20 10 years in a row, which is a hell of an effort. That's a great effort. That's, that's a, a great, great effort. effort. Yeah. And, that's a uh, great effort. And, uh, and John, you sound one, like you still run in the you still running the USTA performance program. Well, you know everything you know, about I, this USTA stuff. I, I you know I love this American player stuff. I love American tennis and uh, obviously played it. And and uh, you know, one thing about American tennis when uh, Timmy in 1979 at the end of 79 he was ranked 18 in the world and he was 11 in the U.S. And wow. I was talking to Gordon Smith one time, you know, about a job opportunity there at the USTA. And I said, well, Gordon, you know, I think we've lost our brand a little bit. I said, I remember 
when Tim and I were playing and he finished 79, uh, 18 in the world. He wasn't even in the top 10 in the U.S. He was ranked 11 in the U.S. Amazing. So, you know, and I said, you know, our, our brand of tennis, you know, was pretty simple. When you played an American player, you know, you're playing somebody who was really aggressive, very competitive, uh, will fight you till the last point. And you knew, knew what you were getting when you were playing American player. And obviously within the American, you know, you had Connors and McEnroe and Bibbs and Solomon and Gottfried and, you know, Gene and Sandy Mayer and, and uh, Roscoe Tanner. You had a plethora of, of great players, you know, all with different styles, but Really uh, just, yeah, the general consensus is you're playing somebody who you're going to have to battle. And that Brian was Godfrey. kind of the, the brand of American tennis. And, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, there's so many competing sports in the U.S. for our best athletes, like pro football and basketball and everything else. Can you imagine if somebody would have given LeBron James a tennis racket when he was eight years old and, and got him some good lessons and taught him how to play tennis. I mean, you, you can only imagine what kind of athletes, you know, if we got, you know, better athletes into tennis, uh, what, what kind of damage they could do, you know? Uh, very quick gully. Cause I know I got a lot to talk about, but uh, you know, Jenny Brady, I think is just unbelievable player. Um, do you know her? I know Jenny very well. My good friend, Roger Anderson, he coached her at the USTA and I'll never forget the first time he was with her down in Australia, we were sitting there watching her play the first round qualies uh, at the Australian Open. And she was down three love and third to this Russian girl who couldn't hit a forehand to save her life. And we're going, forehand, Jenny, forehand. And she finally, the light bulb went on and she started hitting every ball to forehand. She beat this girl like seven, five in the third. And ended up qualifying and getting to the round of 16 of the Australia. And then she got to another round of 16 that year and, and she really took off. And now she's working with a German coach, I think, who's done a great job with her. And it's, it's really nice to see Jenny evolve and, and to a really confident, uh, very accomplished player who's, who's really doing well. You know, Andy Samova? Uh, I do. Yes. I, I actually worked with uh, Amanda a little bit. When she was a young girl, 10, 11, 12 years old, she used to come to Boca when the USTA was, uh, was uh, renting some space from the Everett Academy. And uh, one of our really good coaches, Richard Ashby, who did an amazing job with all the young girls, he worked with Amanda, you know, three, four high, time, times a week. They would bring her there, and I would, I would jump in and help Richard once in a while with Amanda. So Man. I saw that obvious talent when she was young man am i right by saying she has agassi like ball cracking uh, uh, yeah. uh early ball cracking technique uh natural yeah, she, power that's just bonkers when she's playing well yeah yeah well her backhand you know ever since she was a little girl her backhand was always off the charts solid you know, just perfect technique, really clean. And, you know, the one thing that's really hard to teach somebody how to do is time the ball well. I mean, how to time a ball is a God-given talent. And that's right. She just has – she sees the ball well and she can take the ball early. And 
she can find the middle of the racket almost every time. You know, the forehand's not as solid as the backhand, and so the, her forehand's always been a little bit of a work in progress, but it's also really clean. Man, and, when she's playing well, she blows the best players in the world, it seems like, off the court. I watched her blow players off the court and was like, Oh, yeah. Man, this reminds me of when Andre would just abuse, you know, a guy yeah. 12 in the world. Uh, oh, yeah. In the and world, on, man. And on the women's side, you know, I coached Capriati for a couple of years. When Jennifer was young, she was doing the same thing. Forehand and backhand, clean as a whistle, hard and, and, and fairly flat, but timing was beautiful, technique was beautiful, and she could blow girls off the court. Blow, blow off the court. Exactly. Oh, why hasn't what, uh, her, her dad passed? Um, do you have any interesting information you could tell me about? Is well, she having a tough time? Yeah, she was very close to her dad, obviously. And, you know, to his credit, you know, he, even though he was a coach, he allowed other people to help her, which I think as a dad, that's the best thing you can do. Find the best help for your son or your daughter. You know, instead of just saying selfishly, I'm the coach and no, don't listen to anybody else. I think, uh, to, you know, he was quite happy to have other people help her, you know, in her tennis journey. And uh, he was really good about it. He was a very, very supportive, you know, parent and a, and a very good coach in his own right. And I know that that obviously hit her very hard when when she lost her father very suddenly. She looks like she's her tennis is very up and down at the moment. And just last, last, but for me, not least, I feel like Shelby Rogers is playing, you know, top 10 in the world tennis right now. She doesn't seem like she loses anybody lower ranked than her. Yeah. I mean, Shelby was another girl. I, when I was working with the women at the USTA a little bit, I helped Shelby out for a while. And, and once again, you know, Shelby is a very clean ball striker. And she also, she also has a very good serve. She's got a very good serve, first and second. And uh, I think she's dedicated herself a little more to the fitness part of tennis. And she's in great shape. And she's moving better. And I, I think that has helped her with her results. And obviously, the self-belief has jumped off the charts with all the Ws she's racking up. I mean, you got to feel good about yourself, you know? Golly, this was like a tour de force second set. It's one of the best second sets we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, well, You're I big can't time wait. with it, Gully. I can't wait till the third set. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Oh boy, man! You know, this, as much this as could I be know a short about, segment, as as much as I know about you and Timmy, I, I guess I don't know that much. Where does your tennis begin? Well, it, it began when we were five years old. My mother uh, had two. And you guys are Midwest. You guys are Midwest to the core. You're Wisconsin, right? Yeah, we were born in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, like the beer, like the cheese, you know, like the Johnsonville brats. Love the Green Bay Packers, you know. That's part of the D, part of the DNA there. So, and, Gully, uh, you're Green Bay Packers. You don't you don't support the Chicago Bears. I'm not a big bear fan, which doesn't make me too popular down here in Chicago. You're, you're Green Bay Packers. 100%. 100%. Okay, 100%. continue. Sorry. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, my mother looked across the street one day. We, we lived in this old three-story house right across from the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse. 
And during the summer, you know, they would do a summer recreation department program for the city public parks. And the high school tennis coach and the band director, Bill Baker, had a good summer program. Really nice guy. And, you know. And hang on a second. Before we even get into that, who was born first? You or Tim? Uh, me. I'm five minutes older. And you're the lefty. And Tim I'm was the, the righty. Timmy was a righty. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of energy like uh, five-year-old boys do. And my mother looked across the street and there was about 25 foot high fence. And there was eight tennis courts and a practice wall as part of UW lacrosse, university of Wisconsin at lacrosse. And she said, well, maybe I can take you boys over and you could, uh, pace tennis balls for the kids in the program, you know? So she took us across the street and, locked us in that fence and we were running around chasing balls. And, and of course we kind of picked up a racket and started trying to hit balls. And, you know, by the time we were eight, we were pretty damn good. And how did you get very good? We, you know, we played a lot against each other. When there wasn't a court, we would go on the practice wall. We played for hours against the wall, which I would recommend to anyone. The wall's a great teacher because it's not critical and the ball comes back every time. And, uh, you know, people will always ask, you know, when you turn pro, well, when did you turn pro? And I have a, have a kind of a funny turning pro story. Wait, but hold on, Gully. Did you and Tim play the junior tournaments around the country? Did you play the Orange Bowl? Who was well, your competition? What kind of juniors were you guys? Well, we, we were uh, good juniors in Wisconsin, but... You know, my dad was a barber and my mother, uh, you know, worked uh, in in a grocery store and whatever. We we never had the means. We never had the means to travel. So Tim and I never had a private tennis lesson. We never played in a national junior tournament. So Incredible. Yeah, we wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin like most Wisconsin kids do, but they didn't have a scholarship for us. So... We were only offered one full scholarship, and that was to Northern Illinois and DeKalb. So that's how we became NIU Huskies, because that was the only college scholarship offer. So we just really played the tournaments in Wisconsin. Now, so you go to Northern Illinois, and what was that experience like? And uh, what were the schools you played? Like, what was that experience like? Well, Northern was a great experience for Tim and I. They were in the Mid-American Conference and, you know, Division One, And we played a lot of the Big Ten schools. We would play Illinois and Northwestern and Michigan and Wisconsin. We play a lot of the Northwestern or the Big Ten schools every year. And, and I played one in college and Timmy played two, not because I was better, but I happened to be left-handed. And I, I always had a very good serve. So I, I posed problems for, you know, a good players, top players that Tim didn't pose being a right-hander. So I played one and Tim, Tim played two. And we won a very high percentage of our matches and almost never lost in doubles. And, uh, yeah, I was an All-American one year. And, uh, you know, we – we lost to in the NCAA, I think, in the quarterfinals or semis one year to Dick Stockton and Bobby McKinley, who played number one at Trinity, and they never lost a match. And, and I, you know, after Timmy passed away, 
uh, I played a lot of senior doubles with Dick Stockton. We won a lot of tournaments together. And he told me the story. God, we, we, we were playing these twins from northern Illinois in the quarters or semis of the NCAA one year. And uh, we'd never heard of you guys, obviously. So we thought we had an easy match. They ended up beating us like 7-5 or 7-6 in the third. And they, they walked off the court. And we were going, damn, we're lucky to beat those guys. <laughs> now, Gully... That's as under the radar as you can be in tennis. I mean, you right. didn't play national tournaments. No. Nobody knew who you guys were. No. Or did you start making a name for you? So you didn't play Kalamazoo, nothing like that. No, never. No. Never, never never played a national junior tournament. Never had a private lesson. Never had one private are you, Now, are you guys graduates of Northern Illinois? Yeah, we graduated in 73. I coached the team there for, for one year. And uh, in the spring of 74, and then I, I took a job teaching at a club outside Chicago in Crystal Lake. Uh, Timmy, after we graduated, he, he ended up going to Dayton, Ohio, and took a job uh, at Kettering Tennis Center. John Whitlinger's sister, Wendy, was a director of tennis there. So uh, Tim took a job as a teaching pro in Dayton, Ohio, and that's where he had the good fortune to meet Lieutenant Colonel Hank Jungle, who was in the Air Force, stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. And Hank was winning all the tournaments around the Cincinnati and Dayton area at the time. He played number one at Tulane, and he was one of the top 35 and over players in the country. And then Tim started beating him like a drum and everybody else. And Hank goes, geez, Timmy, you're much too good an athlete and a player, you're, you know, to, to, uh, you know, you playing pro tennis, teaching at this club. He goes, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, my wife Patsy and I will will sponsor, help sponsor you. We'll help get you sponsors, and uh, and uh, you know, I'll I'll coach you, and uh, let's try to hit the tour. So Tim uh, officially quit his job there in Dayton, Ohio, in in '75, and he went from a teaching pro in Dayton, Ohio the top hundred in the world in one year. And where were you? Did you, did you join them? I was in Chicago teaching at this club uh, in uh, Crystal Lake. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm winning all the tournaments in the Midwest. I'm winning, you know, every tournament singles and doubles, these little weekend prize money things, you know, you're just hustling. And, You're just playing tournaments. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm teaching like 50 hours a week. I got a great <laughs> junior program going, and I play tournaments on the weekends. And, you know, I'm looking at twin bro, you know, Timmy, just going from teaching pro to top 100. And so in May of 76, I looked at my wife, Julie, who was teaching school, and, I, and we had, you know, about, you know, 30 grand saved up to buy a house. And... <laughs> I kind of looked at her and I go, you know, Timmy's top hundred in the world. You know, I'm left-handed and I'm better looking than he is, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like to give this tennis thing a shot. And so did you, and so how did you get into tournaments? How'd you get points? How'd you get a ranking? Well, yeah, I went on the Southern, the old Southern circuit, the old USTA Southern circuit. And at that time, you know, you had to, play four tournaments to get points. You didn't get points every week. So you had to play these circuits. So I played the Southern Circuit down south. Then I played the Eastern Circuit. I won a, 
Uh, I won a tournament at the Playboy Club in Great Gorge, New Jersey. Come on. Uh, I beat Nick Saviano in the final. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I got my picture taken with a couple of Playboy bunnies, which my wife didn't like that much, but but, uh, that's okay. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I, uh, lost in the qualies of the U.S. Open to Pat Dupre in the last round. Well, McEnroe was going crazy on the next court when he lost to Zan Gary in the last round of qualifying of the U.S. Open <laughs> when he was like 16 or 17. Hang on, Gully. So, so when did you and Tim start partnering? And when did wait? When did you crack the top hundred? When did you crack the top fifty? When did you crack the yeah. top 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 forty? You got yeah, to thirty four, right? Yeah, I got yeah. to thirty four. Um, I, I cracked the top 50 within one year. That match with Laver and Emerson was May of 76. And by May of 77, I was top 50 in the world. You were a mean draw Grand Slam player. Yeah. Yeah, I went from, you know, uh, from that point until the end of the year, I got, I got from no ranking to 116. So I started uh, 78 in... Uh, at 116 and I qualified the first three tournaments and made the semis of all three. They were indoor tournaments in the U S and the the third one, uh, I qualified and uh, got to the semis. I lost to Bjorn Borg in the semis and that match, that result getting the semis of the U S indoor in Memphis got me into the top 50 in the world. And then I pretty much stayed there most of my career and, you know, top 10 or 20 in doubles every year, you know. And you and Tim, once you got into the top 100, I assume you just started playing doubles with with Tim. Yeah, Timmy and I started and, you know, we won 10 titles together and I won 16 overall. And uh, yeah, so we had we had a good run. What was it like playing McEnroe and Fleming uh, in that in that Wimbledon? What was it like that Wimbledon for you guys getting to the finals? Well, the, my my first memory is uh, that I had a bad shoulder, and I was only serving maybe sixty to seventy percent of what I could have served, and they they broke ended up breaking me once a set. Uh, so I was I had had a very busy uh, grass court season. We Timmy and I won Queens. I lost to McEnroe in the quarters in singles, like seven five in the third. Then we won Bristol the next week, and I got to the finals of the singles, lost to Johan Creek in the final. So I I played a ton of matches, and those Slazinger balls were really heavy. And, uh, yeah, so I was really disappointed that I couldn't serve 100% like I wanted to. But I'll never forget, uh, you know, after the finals, we were in the Royal Box getting our runner-up medals from the Duke and – Duchess of of Kent, and Timmy looked over at me with his great smile, and he goes, "Not bad for a couple of small town boys from Onalaska, Wisconsin." So, that's probably my greatest memory. Man, you're in the final eight club of Wimbledon. I mean, you that's go there, right. you got the tickets. That's an incredible. That's thing. right. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great thing. Well, Gully, listen, since we're talking about Wimbledon, all the BS that goes on on the court and stuff isn't usually part of my format but since it's the most famous thing that maybe ever happened in the history of tennis i don't know if our listeners know but 
you were John McEnroe's opponent. Yes. When he went buck wild and was like, you cannot be serious. Yeah. That, yeah. If you're, you, what year, now, tell the story. What year was that? That was 1981, Craig. And, um, what round was it? That was the first round. First round. That's a tough draw, Tom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I could have gotten a better draw. And my wife, Julie, was just about, uh, ready to have our second child, which turned out to be a beautiful daughter named Christy. Uh, so I, was, I wasn't even going to go play Wimbledon that year. I was going to stay home and just be with my wife while she had the, the baby. And she said, no, you, you know, you should go. You're straight in. So I actually went over to Wimbledon without any preparation. I didn't play Queens or, or the other warm-up tournament. And, uh, and I drew McEnroe first round. And Tim and I were divorced that year, so I didn't play doubles with Tim. And uh, Dennis Ralston actually asked me to. You had a problem. You, you and Tim were in a fight. Yeah, we, we just needed a break. So 81, mm -hmm. we didn't play doubles together. And Dennis Ralston was over there coaching Stan Smith and Gottfried and Stockton, I think. So he asked me to play doubles, and I stupidly said yes. So fast forward to the match. You know, we're playing on the old court one, which is not there anymore, but the old court one. The old court one, Wimbledon. Yeah, great court, really great court. And, uh, you know, McEnroe, I'd always played McEnroe close. I never beat him in singles, but I always had really good matches with him because I could hold serve as well. So we always had some battles. But, um, you know, I had five set points the first two sets and lost seven, five, seven, six. And that incident happened at two all in the third. And so I was, I was really annoyed that I had been playing well, but I, I didn't have anything to show for it. You know, he won the first two sets. I could have been up two sets to love, or maybe at worst been one set all. And this incident happened at two all. And for all the baseball fans, I know you guys are big Red Sox fans there. Yeah you know, that was the summer of the baseball strike. So there was no baseball in the U.S. that year. So Wimbledon had more worldwide focus and certainly U.S. focus than it ever had because there was no baseball to follow. So, you know, it's like two all in the third set, I think. And, you know, Mac hits a good slice down the tee and hit the line, chalk flew up. You know, I got blinded. Gully, 100% ball was in. Oh, yeah, way yeah. in, yeah. I mean, chalk everywhere, and they had this old English umpire, and, and they called it out, you know, and, and McEnroe goes nuts, you know. And, what do you mean? You can't be serious. Chalk blew up. And then he kind of pointed at me, and he goes, he, he was switching sides already, you know, this kind of <laughs> stuff. And, you know, he, it, it's well documented. Your viewers can go on YouTube and type in John McEnroe, you cannot be serious, and they can – they can see me stretching my forehand return on the deuce side, stretching for a forehand return and having the ball go by me. And so, you know, I'm just waiting around and all the histrionics and the argument with the umpire. Then the referee, Fred Hoyles, comes out. And McEnroe puts together a, a stream of words that were very impressive but would get most players defaulted, you know, uh, to did the you, umpire. Gully, did you think he was going to get defaulted? I thought he was going to get defaulted for sure for what he, he was saying, for what he was saying to the referee, which I can't can't repeat on a family show like yours. But <laughs> but uh, 
you know, so, you know, he was, I know light, he was lighting this guy up bad. No, huh? He was lighting him up. He was lighting him up. Uh, and, you know, Fred was, he was a referee at Wimbledon for quite a, quite a few years before uh, Alan Mills took over. But, you know, so, you know, I lose six, three in the, in the third, and, you know, we shake hands and matches over and I'm not very happy. And then I go, Oh, crap, I got to stick around and play doubles. I don't want to play doubles. I want to get home and be with my wife, you know? So I find Dennis Ralston and I say, Hey, Dennis, you know, I, you know, since I've lost in singles and you know, I really need to get home to be with Julie, she's going to have a baby any day now and I don't want to miss it. And Dennis was really cool. He goes, like, no problem. I'm coaching like three or four guys. I have plenty to do. And, you know, Good luck to Julie and best of luck with the baby and the whole thing, you know. You know and you pulled out. And, and But at that time, you had to go out to Wimbledon to pull out. So the next day, I, I turn up at the referee's office, Fred Hoyle. He's sitting behind his desk. And, you know, I walk in and uh, I said, Fred, I, I, I'm just here. Uh, I'm going to pull out of the doubles. I said, I've already talked to my partner, Dennis Ralston, and let him know. But, um, you know, my wife, Julie, is pregnant, and she's going to have a baby, like, any day, and I don't want to miss it. So I'm going to pull out of the doubles. And old Freddie looks up at me, and he goes, well, Tom, you know, I could fine you uh, because you're not sick or you're not injured. And I absorbed that for a nanosecond. And I said, well, Fred, I said, I guess you could, but I, I could also tell the press what John McEnroe was calling you on court one yesterday <laughs> and he kind of looked at me for a second thought about that and he goes have a safe trip home give my best regards to julie and good luck with the new baby <laughs> i go you're gonna find me for going home to be with my pregnant wife at the birth of our second daughter and, and you didn't find McEnroe yesterday for what he called you on court one you know it's unreal unreal yeah, he should have. Yeah. He should have got deefed. Yeah, he probably should have for sure. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the ten ball scramble. We don't do a deep dive. I say it, and then you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Ready. Is it true your golf is now better than your tennis? Yes. Really? Yeah. I made that up. Your your golf is better than your tennis. Two-time defending club champion at the Glen Club in Chicago. Come on. Glenview. Golly. Yeah. yeah. I can play. And you were starting point guard for your high school, too? Yes. So you guys, did Timmy play basketball, too? Yes. He, he was the point guard. I was the left wing. You were the two guard? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What's your handicap, Golly? I'm a four right now. That's no joke. That is no joke. And no Marty Fish, but I'm pretty good. That's pretty good. Club chant. Uh, your current racket? Uh, Wilson. Uh, uh, Wilson. What's it called? <laughs> Gully, what's, um, what was your, what's your favorite racket? What was your favorite racket all the time you were playing pro tennis? Well, we, we loved that Aldi lot. You know, Timmy and I were the first pros to use that graphite racket, the Aldi La Cannon. The Aldi La Cannon? Yeah, yeah. How do you spell that? A-L-D-I-L-A. They're the worldwide leader in golf shaft, graphite golf shafts and fly fishing rods. And they had a tennis racket? They had a tennis racket. It cost 500 bucks. And, and, and you guys got that deal? 
we, yeah, we had a three-year deal with Aldila. They were based in San Diego and, you know, they had a hair, you know, they would get a lot of times a hairline crack in the throat. And if Craig, if you're paying 500 for a racket and you see a hairline crack, you're going to send it back, right? So they, they actually got out of the tennis racket business, but they're still like the worldwide leader in, uh, in, uh, in, in golf, shafts. golf shafts and yeah. also uh, fishing rods. Do you guys make a fortune with them, those, that, that contract? Yeah, we, we, we did pretty well. We did pretty well. That was some of Timmy's best years, so he, he did very well. How how did you string your racket when you were playing? Uh, we strung them pretty tight with gut, you know, probably 55 to 60 pounds, depending on the conditions. Yeah, and somewhere in that range. What size was your grip? Uh, four and a half. Four and a half. Your favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Your favorite court? Can be any court in the world. Center court at Wimbledon. Gully, is it true that... You've said that playing the Huggy Bear was more pressure than any other play, any other event you ever played. Yeah, I did say that. I played with Ted Forsman. That was a lot of pressure. <laughs> For our listeners, you should have a read of my article on the Huggy Bear in Racket Magazine. Uh, shameless plug there. <laughs> the best coaching job you ever did. I coached him a lot. He wouldn't have been that good if I hadn't been a good coach. But. Uh, I think, you know, probably the decision to put Sampras in the doubles in Moscow and when we beat Russia in the finals of the Davis Cup in 95 was uh, probably, you know, one of the kind of gutsiest calls I've ever made as a coach. Did you stew the night before on that or what? Well, Pete stewed a little more than me. You know, I... uh, you know, he won his first match against Chesnikov, 6-4 six, six, in the fifth in about four and a half hours. And then he collapsed on the court in full body cramps. And, you know, our doctor put a couple bags of IV fluid in him in the locker room. And he's up in the, uh, in the uh, training room uh, that night around 8 o'clock getting a massage. And I had talked to Richie Rennenberg uh, about taking him out of the doubles and putting in Sampras. And, you know, Richie was a, was a great team guy and a very selfless guy. Uh, and uh, he goes, Gully, whatever is best for the team, I'm ready to play. I'm ready to be the best cheerleader you got. So I walked into the training room. Sampras is laying on his stomach getting a massage. And I said, hey, Pistol, how about playing a little doubles with your buddy Todd Martin tomorrow? He kind of turned over. He looked at me and goes, doubles? Geez, geez, Cap, I haven't played doubles in a year. And besides that, I feel awful. And I said, is that a yes or a maybe? And he laughed. And he goes, why don't you do this? Why don't you get Richie and Todd ready to play tomorrow and then and do their normal doubles thing, and I'll come over, and you and I can hit for half an hour, and we can make a game-day decision. And I said, okay. So I get Todd and Richie. They had about a 45-minute workout in the morning, and they're ready to play. And then Pete kind of rolls over, and I hit a few balls with Pete for half an hour or so. And he goes, I don't know, Cap. You know, I don't feel that great, but it's your call. I said, you're in, man. Let's go. And he he didn't even have an extra shirt, so I actually took him took one of my shirts and gave him one of my Nike shirts to wear for the match. (laughs) And virtuoso performance, by the way, one of the greatest moments in U S Davis cup history. 
Yeah, he. they ended up, they were down a break early, and they broke back, and he said, listen, if you guys can squeak out this first set, you can steamroll these guys, and they won 7-5, 6-1, 6-3, or 6-4 against Kapelnikov and Andre Olhofsky, who were a Grand Slam winning doubles team. So they were a very, very good pair, you know. So that, that put us up 2-1, and then Sampras clinched the match the next day by beating Kapelnikov in straight sets, 6-2, uh, 6-4, six, 7-6. Six, seven, six. On clay. The French, French Open champion on clay, Vito. Yeah, and hit an ace in the tiebreaker to win the match. Amazing. That's an incredible effort, Gully. Yeah. Really, one of the one of the great efforts I've ever seen. And Sampras doesn't get enough credit. I think it was one of the greatest efforts in Davis Cup history. Listen, I just heard about this, and I'm just going to hammer you with it. What What's the story behind your gullyisms? Well, gullyisms are just kind of sayings that I've I've kind of collected over the years. You know uh, that I that I coaching sayings, coaching sayings that I kind of drop some wisdom or some supposed wisdom on people. You know? I'm going to say a few of them, and then I want you to explain them. Okay. Don't bow before the performance. That's when you're serving and you're you're dropping your head before you hit the ball. Yeah, you got to keep your chin up. The performance is the strike, okay? That's the performance. So don't bow before the performance. Don't drop your head. Yeah. Uh, serve and survey. That's uh, for the uh, my doubles clinics, you know, a lot of the – you know, a lot of the people like you are serving volleyers, and that's what you should be doing in doubles. But, you know, a lot of lot of club players kind of serve and survey. They just kind of serve and kind of stay at the baseline and check things out. So, but, you know, they need to be serving. And if they do survey, when they see that short ball, they got to jump on it. Squeeze and freeze. Okay, that's right before you hit that volley, especially the volley if you want to hit it firm. Your bottom three fingers, these bottom three fingers are your firm fingers. Your pointer finger and your thumb are your control fingers. So you squeeze up on those bottom three fingers right before you contact that volley. So you're the boss of the contact. The contact isn't the boss of you. It doesn't kind of make your racket wiggle. You have command uh, of the contact point on your volleys. Aggression with discretion you know, have discretion on when you're aggressive. Try to pick the right moments when you're behind the baseline and you're kind of leaning back, you play the high heavy, but when you're inside the court, go for it. But you got to be discreet. You got to be a good decision maker. I need that gully aggression with discretion. Yeah, exactly. I'm just guessing you're probably aggressive all the time. I, uh, I overhit on the big points. That's the okay. difference between the 4-0 and the 5-0. Exactly. Okay. Let's move into the fifth set. This okay. is the king of the court. If okay. you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, with no politics, no aggravation, what would it be? could be anything. Uh, no lats. Uh, that would be one. I think that would speed up the game. Uh I don't like the whole coaching thing on the WTA. I would, I would outlaw coaching. I think one of the things that makes tennis, I think, such a great backgammon or chess match, as we love to play, is that the whole mental battle that's going on as well as the physical battle and the strategic battle. So 
I, I don't think there should be a coaching allowed. I, I think it just kind of muddies the waters. And they all speak in foreign languages anyway. So for us American viewers, you know, we don't get to understand what they're saying, you know. Quite often in the scramble, I ask uh, the, the I say, are you are you uh, a proponent of a lean entourage? Sorry, uh, a big entourage or lean and mean? What's your opinion of the, the the giant entourages that we're seeing now? That's uh, too much noise. Too much noise. You know, Timmy used to travel with Sampras, and he would have a trainer. You know, too. But you keep it simple. You know, kiss method. You know, I mean. You know, the more people you got in your entourage, the, the more outside noise. And, and, and to be a superior tennis player, you need to be able to kind of keep things in balance between your private life and your professional life. Hey, man, you know, like I said, I ball boyed for you and your brother when I was, or I didn't say it, but I ball boyed for you and your brother when I was, you know, eight years old. And, um, when you guys came to Newport, Rhode Island, that was kind of a big thing for us. Well, we love Newport. I mean, clearly, uh, Newport, it's got to be one of the top three or four towns in the country in the summer. And uh, the history of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, you know, we love playing on grass and we love seeing Norm Shapiro and his family. <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a big highlight. We loved, you know, and and after the kind of pressure cooker that was Wimbledon, and clearly a Grand Slam that you wanted to do well, Newport was a win whether you won the tournament or lost in the first round. It's such a beautiful place to be in the summer, and it was so relaxing. You know, it, it was just a, a massive win whether you <laughs> played well in the tournament or not. I know. I always thought that better players should come just to go to Newport. No, I, I think they're missing out for sure. But, uh, you know, a lot of, most of the top players always take a couple weeks off after the Grand Slam, and, and you can see why. Hey, man, I wasn't sure I could do this interview without shedding a tear, but uh, I think maybe we got through without, without yeah. that. Um, thank you so much. And uh, Tom Gullickson, you are released. Thanks, Craig. Always a pleasure uh, spending time with you and sharing some fun and some memories. Huge thank you to Tom Gullickson, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. If you have not done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.